You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Today's show is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, MD, Scuttlebutt, Hartman, Gingrich, Clan Roland, Big Beard, Willie P., Schmarls, Proctor, Long Knives Logan, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Pitluck, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin-Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstrap Spaley. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. I've been reading a book about Charlemagne, the Frankish king, the first Holy Roman Emperor. It's a good book, but it's kind of weird because we know so little about the actual man. You know, we know a good deal about his wars and his laws and his religious practices and his decrees, but there's not a whole lot of just pure biographical data. So we get a lot of tertiary information in there about the Frankish kingdom as it kind of relates to the king himself. And one fact in there really jumped out at me. Charlemagne enacted a law that every woman in his kingdom, in his empire, be required to provide one linen shirt a year to his household. This was not an insubstantial tax. The raw material that goes into making linen, the flax, well, it wasn't expensive per se, but it wasn't free. More than that, though, the processing that flax into fabric and then actually making a shirt out of it, well, that was a labor-intensive process. It could take months, you know, considering all of the other work that was heaped on most women in the empire. And when we say the household, the royal household, we're not talking about the king and his immediate family. That was a household that included all of Charlemagne's knights, and he had kind of a Knights of the Round Table situation with his paladins. But then there were all of the youths that Charlemagne was responsible for. All of his wards and the ladies-in-waiting for his wives and all of the hostages for foreign powers. But then 
all of the servants were included as well. Across the empire, that means hundreds of cooks and maids and smiths and horsemasters and hawkers and game wardens. A whole lot of people. But the largest group, by far, and this is on brand for Charlemagne, were the religious folk, the priests and nuns and monks. Charlemagne had a ton of churches and nunneries and monasteries under his personal supervision. They were considered part of his household, and he provided all of them with linen garments. And that's, I think, where the term man of the cloth comes from. If you're not familiar with that idiom, it means a, a priest, usually, but a few hundred years ago, it meant anyone who wore the king's livery. However, in Charlemagne's household, it was both. And if that's true, it is worthy of note, because the cloth in question were the linen shirts provided by every woman in the kingdom for his household. The hours every year that every woman in the kingdom would have spent working on those linen garments, well, it was a reminder of the king's power. Similarly, every person who killed a wolf in the entire empire was required by law to send that wolf's pelt to the king. Wolf pelts apparently make the best cloaks around. But Charlemagne's empire wasn't small. I think about the sheer amount of bureaucratic work and the mountain of manual labor that went into providing those linen articles of clothing. This was a time before there was any kind of industrialization. It, it was a massive undertaking. And it's impressive, but I hear you out there. You're saying, okay, all right, I've gone with you down some weird roads, but why are we talking about Charlemagne's linen garments? Well, partly because I thought it was cool, but also because we're going to, today, be talking about a time in which industrialization was just beginning to peek its head out. A time when the manufacture of cloth and textiles was causing serious problems. Problems for merchants and manufacturers, very big problems for giant multinational companies, and for kings. The only people really to benefit from these problems were the pirates. This is episode 231, Piracy, Sacrilege, and Les Majesté. In 1696, the English East India Company was under fire from all sides. In India itself, they were literally under fire, mostly from mobs of Mughal citizens who were apoplectic with rage over the depredations done against them by a bunch of English pirates. The East India Company governor of Bombay, Samuel Annesley, was under siege. As a horde of enraged locals bore down on his factory, quote, It is needless to write, he wrote, of the indignities, slavish usages, and tyrannical insultings we hourly bear, day and night, and to expiate on so hateful a subject would no ways redress or alleviate our sufferings. In his book, The Honorable Company, 
A History of the English East India Company, John Key expands on this. He writes, quote, Their fate now rested with the emperor, Aurangzeb, whose fury on hearing of the Ganji Sawai's sacking was wholly predictable. Piracy, sacrilege, and les majestés had all been compounded in one action. No punishment was too severe for such treacherous infidels. Bombay and Madras must be attacked immediately, and the English banished forever. For anyone unfamiliar with the term, les majestés means disrespect to a royal authority. In severe cases, it was often punished with execution. Now, the East India Company would work out this little tiff with Aurangzeb eventually. There was a tense peace that required some genuinely massive bribes, as well as the promises for protection on future voyages of the Pilgrim fleet. There were sureties from the English crown that they and the company would take steps to punish those pirates and, more importantly, to stop other pirates from sailing into their waters. On 12 October 1695, another governor of the East India Company, John Gayer, wrote a consequential letter to London. In part, it reads, quote, The pirates, being neglected of all hands, begin to grow formidable, and if some course be not taken to destroy them, they will yearly increase, having found their trade so beneficial, and how soon the company's servants, as well as their trade, may be sacrificed to revenge the quarrel of the sufferers, they know not. End quote. A terrifying prospect. Pirates growing more and more formidable by the year. That's why William III commissioned William Kidd in the first place. These pirates were an existential threat to the East India Company, but also the economic well-being of the English world and their burgeoning empire. Not to mention, as was always on the king's mind, the war. For the company itself, though, that wasn't their biggest problem in 1695 into 1696. Their biggest problem, and this brings us back around to why I opened up the episode talking about Charlemagne, their problem was cotton. It might not seem all that important, but in 1696, cotton was on the verge of upending the whole of English society. For the past... Several centuries, wool had been the most profitable export that Britain had to offer. There was a little blip when Welsh gold made the Roman Empire quite wealthy, and, of course, tin was always important, but wool was really the backbone of the British economy. England fought three wars with the Netherlands, based, partly at least, on their cut of the wool market share. But it wasn't here in 1696, it wasn't the Netherlands that was on the verge of breaking England's economy. It was India, and their raw cotton, and more specifically, the finished product called calico. Now, calico is not as much in use today. At least, I don't think so. To be honest, I don't know much about fabrics or fashion, and 
I think that calico is more in use in women's clothing, but forgive me if I'm getting some of this wrong. But calico is a medium-weave cotton fabric, and traditionally it's unbleached and not dyed. It's heavier than a muslin fabric, which is a really light, loose cotton weave, but it's not as heavy as a denim. If you're unfamiliar with it, as I was, you should go look at one of those reusable grocery bags that you bought and forget to take to the store to carry your groceries. Those, as long as there's no synthetics involved, are usually made out of a calico weave. Now, it's called calico for the port of Calicut, a city used a city that was something of a gateway to India, for seaborne colonists at any rate. But imagine that you're living in an England without any kind of real climate control outside of a fire. You know, it's cold and wet in the winter. That's perfect for wool, but the summers are somewhat more warm and usually wet. Wool doesn't really breathe all that well and isn't exactly a great fabric for warm weather, even when it is as loose and light as possible. Beyond that, wool is, you know, scratchy. But calico is not scratchy and it breathes exceptionally well. Beyond all of that, wool isn't exactly what you would call sexy. Now, I know, autumn is upon us, at least on this half of the globe. And I have seen cute women in cute wool sweaters, not denying that. But calico could offer a much more attractive, much more form-fitting, and often much more scandalously cut dress, and they could even have a, a, a pretty floral print on them, which was a big draw to Calico. That floral print has become so ubiquitous when talking about Calico that often Calico is used to refer to a specific type of print. Now, Calico with those particular prints are supposed to be called chintz for the designs that were actually painted on, but in England, in the late 17th century, no woman's wardrobe was complete without at least one beautiful calico dress. And it wasn't just for ladies and the well-off, it was for everyone, maids and servants and housewives, because calico was cheap. Even the pretty painted stuff was cheap. All of which is to say, all of those factors mean that between about 1670 and 1696, wool lost about 30% of its market share to calico. And the driving force behind that shift was unquestionably women. It was the must-have look of the season. But there was a movement among the first modern ad campaigns against calico. Wool manufacturers in England hated this stuff. It was making their wallets a lot lighter. So they produced and distributed a, a little ditty. Kind of a poem, but a, a, a classy piece, definitely, that goes something like this. 
None shall be thought a more scandalous slut than a tawdry calico madam. Not exactly subtle. Thanks to this little poem, the movement was called the Calico Madam Movement, and when they say the word madam, they mean a prostitute. I mean, look at this horrific, sinful, scandalous fabric. I mean, after all, you can actually see that there's a woman underneath that fabric. Just sinful, horrible stuff. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. In Enemy of All Mankind, Stephen Johnson characterizes this anti-calico movement as a Make England's Wool Market Great Again movement. But this was undeniably a conservative movement. There were some undertones of things like nationalism, which was a pretty new idea in 1696, but there's also some tones of racism. You know, it was an Indian menace invading our shores, right? But the biggest tone, the overtone of this entire movement was... Puritan sexual shaming. The message was clear. Is your wife wearing calico? Well, she just may be a whore. But on a certain level, it was a populist movement. You know, buying into the Englishness of the wool trade. And as a movement, it worked. In March 1696, the Parliament met and enacted a ban on all Indian fabrics, especially cotton fabrics, which was pretty bad news for the English East India Company. In a mere couple of months, the share price of their company dropped by half. It was a disaster. You'll remember the insider trading scandal that rocked London and implicated a bunch of members of the East India Company. Then, of course, there was the capture by pirates of the Ganji Sawai, and the ease with which a few ragged mobs put a halt to virtually all of the company's trading. 
But then this populist movement in England that made their stock just plummet. The East India Company was in trouble. A sense of existential dread set in among their shareholders. The East India Company had gone from this meteoric rising star, a company whose financial power rivaled that of more than a few nation-states, to a pretty third-rate trading firm in just a few months. Now, Stephen Johnson goes on to give us a number of possible scenarios through which the East India Company might have ceased to exist, and they all sound pretty plausible to me. But then he writes, quote, We should not push the alternate histories too far. The joint stock multinational corporation was probably going to become a dominant organizational form one way or another. But if there were a moment when its long-term survival was most at peril, it was probably during the last decade of the 17th century. The company took three big lessons from this whole affair, or series of unfortunate events. First, and the big one here, is they had to catch this Henry Avery. Failure to do so might mean their prestige would falter in the eyes of the world. Second, they needed friends in high places. You know, they already had some powerful men on their board of directors and among their shareholders, but look, Parliament just dealt them a pretty serious body blow without hardly a fight. They needed political allies. In the Parliament, absolutely, but also in the Admiralty. They were essentially a naval organization, after all, but beyond all of that, they needed allies in the court of King William and Queen Mary. And then third, and this was really the big lesson, they needed more guns. They needed big guns and the ships to carry them, as well as little guns and the men to carry them. That third lesson isn't really going to concern us too much on the show. That's the story of the 18th century, right there. We're not going to get into all of that. However, lessons one and two are going to concern us, and really, in a way, they kind of go hand in hand. The company could get the English government in their corner and capture Henry Avery and restore their prestige in one big play. Their first move was that letter written while their factory was under siege, that we quoted earlier. John Key quotes that letter and summarizes some of the less comprehensible bits by John Gayer. If there be not care taken to suppress the pirates, wrote Gayer to the directors, which included two of the Hublon brothers, if you remember them, the English could expect to have their throats cut, and your honor's trade in India will be wholly lost. And this letter made the rounds in London. It lit a fire under the East India Company top brass. On the 19th of June, the company's directors had a big meeting at East India House in London. These were some important men. We're talking about former governors of the East India Company, members of Parliament, two former mayors of London, and most of the board of the Bank of England, including those two brothers who blown. 
These men were all crazy rich, but they had been much more crazy rich just a few months earlier. Their stock price had taken that pretty serious hit. Now, this meeting on the surface was just a quarterly board of directors meeting that dealt with all the regular business, but they all knew why they were there. It was the second move in their big power play. They drafted a letter that reads, in part, as follows. Whereas we have received information from the Governor and Company of Merchants of London trading to the East Indies, that one Henry Every, commander of the ship called Fancy, of forty-five guns and one hundred and thirty men, has, under English colors, acted as a common pirate and robber upon the high seas, and hath performed, under such colors, to commit several acts of piracy upon the seas of India and Persia, and may occasion great damage to the merchants of England, we do hereby charge, command all His Majesty's admirals, captains, and other officers at sea, and all His Majesty's governors and commanders of any forts, castles, or other places in His Majesty's plantation, or otherwise, to seize and take Henry Every, and such as are with him, on the ship to be punished as pirates upon the high seas. This was followed shortly thereafter by a proclamation from the Lords of Trade signed by King William himself. It reads, quote, We do therefore, with advice of the Lords of our Privy Council, require and command the sheriffs of the several shires, stewarts of stewartries, baileys of regalities, and their respective deputies, magistrates of boroughs, officers of our army, commanders of our forces and garrisons, and all others employed or trusted by us in any station whatsoever, civil or military within this kingdom, and our good subjects whatsoever within the same, to do their utmost endeavor and diligence to seize upon and apprehend the persons of the said Henry Every and several of his accomplices. Over the next few weeks, the town criers in every English city and town of any reasonable size read out a truncated version of this message. As soon as was reasonably possible, every English-speaking person in the English-speaking world knew that Henry Every was very much public enemy number one. But there was one big addition to that proclamation. The English government, funded by the East India Company, was offering a reward for any information that would lead to Henry Every equal to, in modern U.S. dollars, $50,000. Every agent of the king, every man in every army, every sailor on every ship, and even every citizen in every polity were required to hunt down and capture, or if necessary kill, Henry Every and his associates. This was the first global manhunt in history. It was highly publicized and well-known. But there was one final move that the East India Company had to undertake which was far less publicized. 
The company detained every ship that put in at their ports and interrogated their crews. They had ways of making you talk, not torture, but in this case, the promise of money. They wanted to find any man who had ever served on a privateer or, better yet, a pirate. Not to arrest them, but to employ them. These men, once found, would be sent out to New York or London or St. Augustine Bay or maybe even Nassau. They would then look for work on any pirate ships that might pass by. And they would actually take the job, they would go out pirating. But before the ship left port, they would get word clandestinely to East India Company agents in the region. They would inform the company of everything. The pirate captain, the quartermaster, the name of the ship, a description of the ship, and, if they had it, their intended destination. That agent would get a message to a ship which would intercept the pirates en route to their destination. The informant, in theory, would be taken away for questioning and would never return. The pirates, still in chains, would think that he had died, and, you know, who's to say that sometimes he didn't? But the idea was that this double agent would be given a fat purse of silver and set free to buy a modest piece of land in... Oh, Virginia. Now, the company went through with this project, but we don't really have any details. I mean, you don't publish lists of double agents for pretty obvious reasons. But the potential ramifications here are enormous. None of the pirates of the round knew about this program, but we do. We know that out there in the world, beginning in 1696 are a number of men working for the company and informing on their pirate brethren. We don't know who they are, but every time that a ship gets hunted down in the years to come, we're going to have to wonder, was there an informant for the East India Company on board? It was devious, and it was brilliant. But that's how the East India Company did business, brilliantly and deviously. And on that note, I'd like to end today on a question. I'm not going to make any accusations because we don't have any evidence of this, but let's pretend that you were a member of a company that was looking to aggressively expand. You were in possession of maybe a few port cities, but you wanted to grow your market base into, I don't know, the whole of India. That would be an expensive prospect and a dangerous prospect, but also the most profitable venture in the history of mankind. So how do you go about doing that? Well, you're going to need two primary things. First, you're going to need some friends in high places. The best, of course, would be those at the very top, the king and queen. But beyond that, you're going to need a lot more guns. And if that were your goal, wouldn't it be helpful if 
there were a bunch of dastardly pirates roaming the high seas just offshore of the country you were looking to conquer. If you played your cards just right, you might be able to convince the emperor of the said country that he should allow you to bring in more guns, more ships, and more men for his protection. Now, I don't think that the East India Company was behind the piracies in the Indian Ocean. I don't frankly give them that much credit, but I do think that when all of that happened, they looked at the situation and figured out the very best way that they could profit, which was, after all, their end goal, from all of this terror on the high seas. Next time, we're going to return to the story of the man who was the focus of all of this ire, public enemy number one, Henry Every and the Fancy. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, all of you who have left ratings or reviews for the show, you all help get it noticed. I couldn't do it without you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, why not do so at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight